Welcome to the Redeemer Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. At Redeemer, we are committed to following Jesus and connecting people to God's transforming love. To stay connected to all that's happening here, visit RedeemerTulsa.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now here's a message from Redeemer member Daniel Bunn. Well, good morning. I have the privilege of introducing you this morning to Daniel Bunn, although many of you already know him from uh, the way that we frequently book him to teach in Sunday school here at Redeemer. Daniel and Robin and their four children became a part of our church family about a year and a half ago, uh, and it has been such a delight to have them as a part of the Redeemer family. Uh, he is an outstanding teacher. He, is a, he has a PhD in Old Testament, and so we thought it would be fun to invite him to come this morning and preach from Luke. You're welcome. Uh, But really, I know you're going to enjoy this morning, and for those of you who have heard him in Sunday school, uh, you already deeply appreciate his teaching. Daniel, I just say I honor you, and I love you as a friend, and so thankful for how you've contributed to the spiritual formation of our church. So put your hands together. Give a warm welcome to one of our own, Daniel. All right, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 18 this morning, Luke 18. If you have your own Bibles, I invite you to open up and follow along. I know these days we all have our own Bible because we carry a phone around everywhere we go. Uh, But I invite you to open up to chapter 18 of Luke where you can follow along on the screen behind me or in the red Bible in the seat back in front of you on page 1628. Luke 18, and we're going to start with verse 2. Luke 18, verse 2. He, that is Jesus, said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. Now, how would you like that to be how you were known? I imagine on your tombstone, here lies Daniel, who neither feared God nor cared about people. Keep going, verse 3, and there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. Now in the ancient world, to be a widow was to be in a precarious position. Widows had lost their husbands, and in that time, it meant they had lost their source of provision and livelihood, and they found themselves having to depend on the goodness and kindness of others and on what little they might have had for their own well-being and survival. They were living paycheck to paycheck. Now, widows in that time certainly wouldn't have been someone you would have used if you were telling a story about some heroic figure. So it's surprising when you open up the Gospels, there are widows all over the place. And they're often the main characters in stories, or they're those who receive the blessing of Jesus. So we have a widow here in this parable. And this particular widow is coming before this non-God-fearing, non-people-loving judge with a plea. She says, grant me justice against my adversaries. Now, we don't know as readers what's happened, but something has happened. She's been wronged by someone. Maybe someone owed her something that they didn't pay. Maybe someone had stolen from her, but again... Being as she was in a position where she depended on everything, this could be the difference between her having a roof over her head and not. So she goes before this judge, 
Give me justice. Grant me justice against my adversary. Now, this judge, we met him just a second ago, not a very pleasant figure. He refuses. No, thank you. Now, what should have happened in this moment, in this time place, is this widow should have heard the judgment issued by this judge, accepted it, and gone on about her business. There was nothing else she could do in that world. This widow, though, doesn't follow the script. She comes again before the judge, grant me justice against my adversary. And again, he says no. Grant me justice against my adversary. Again, no. Grant me justice against my adversary. And finally, the judge gives in. Now, had this judge had a change of heart, was this Ebenezer Scrooge who finally realized his injustice that was, the injustice that was caused by his craving for wealth? Was it George Bailey having recognized finally it is a wonderful life? No, unfortunately, not so much with this judge. Let's keep reading verse 4. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, at least he's self-aware, I don't care about anyone or anything, yet, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. He's just annoyed by her. She keeps coming and pestering him. And so finally, he gives in. And he feared her anxiety and her annoyance might turn into aggression. The language used here is taken from the boxing ring, actually. He feared she might give him a black eye, so to speak. So he gives in. He gives her what she wanted. And that's the end of the parable. That's the whole parable right there. So we read this parable, and there's an interesting thing about parables. Parables, for some reason, tend to stick with us. If I were to ask you, or if I were to ask someone out on the street, tell me something about the parable of the Good Samaritan. There's a good chance, even if you didn't flip over there and looped that passage, you could tell me some of the characters, maybe the storyline, what happens there. If I said, what about the parable of the prodigal son? Again, another one you probably could share some basic details about. Maybe this parable is one of those, maybe it's not, but for some reason, parables stick. That's probably because they're stories. Stories resonate. And they're simple stories. They're just usually a few main characters. And there's a shock or a twist at the end. And so it just sticks with us. Now that's probably a good thing. We chew on it for some time. We walk out of here. We have the parable bouncing around in our brains. And we're considering it. We're contemplating it. But then what we often do is this. We only remember the parable itself. And so we take just the parable by itself... And we start trying to think, well, what does it mean? And we, we sort of draw out a lesson from the parable itself. Which, again, is not necessarily a bad thing, except it can become problematic for this reason. We can't go to our bookshelves at home and pull off the shelf a book entitled The Parables of Jesus and flip open and just start reading parables, much like we might do with nursery rhymes or fairy tales. 
Parables are always told to address specific situations for specific audiences. They address specific situations for specific audiences. So when we read a parable, perhaps more important than the question of what, what's in the parable, we have to ask ourselves, why was it told and to whom was it told? Who was hearing this parable? Here's what happens if you read through the Gospels. Jesus is going about, walking around, teaching, doing what he does, and something happens. Maybe someone asks him a question. Maybe he witnesses something. And in response to that question or to that event, that experience, he tells a parable. And there's always a specific audience in mind when he tells the parable. So if we were to go back to this parable I've read to you this morning, you'll notice I skipped verse 1 earlier because the parable begins in verse 2. But one of the ways we can start to answer those questions of why is a parable told and to whom it's told is simply by reading the verses that come before and after the parable. So let's read now verse 1, chapter 18, verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So Luke, the guy telling us this story, telling you and me this story, tells us, before he ever even tells the parable, what it means. He says this was a parable told to the disciples to encourage them, to show them that they should pray always and not give up. So he tells us right out, no no spoiler alert, he just goes right to it and tells us, here's what the parable means. The disciples are to pray always and not give up. Now, quick question, by show of hands, and remember, we're in church, so honesty is the best policy. How many of you made it successfully through the month of January with your New Year's resolutions intact? Big hands up, big hands. Okay, I see Two, so okay. How about February? Anyone make it through February? March? Okay, we know who the liar is in the crowd. No, I'm just kidding. Congratulations. Good job. Good job. You're in a small minority if you make it this far into the year with your New Year's resolutions intact. Now, something fascinating happens every year. There's one week between Christmas and New Year's Day. And for some reason, maybe it's we've sniffed too much pine recently, or maybe something was in the eggnog, but for some reason, we get all hopeful and excited. We start to look back at the year that's just passed. We think of the joy, the pain, the victories, the failures. And all of that is put in the light of the fact that coming in a few days on January 1, we get a fresh start. Another opportunity to be more successful at my job. Another opportunity to become a better person, to lose more weight, etc., etc. And it's fascinating to watch this play out. The gym is an especially poignant place to go witness this play out. If you go to the gym in January, it is packed, floor to ceiling with people. And they are excited, they're motivated, they're hitting it hard. If you go back in February, the crowd is trimmed down a little bit though not in the sense that they had hoped, perhaps. You go back in March, and it's pretty much back to the regulars. Now, why is it that we give up on anything? 
Why do we give up? There could be several reasons. But of those, one stands out to me. Sometimes we give up because we no longer believe that what we're doing leads to the goal that we were first pursuing. We no longer believe that what we are doing now is leading, in fact, to the goal we had hoped to pursue. Maybe those people in the gym aren't seeing the results. You know, they haven't lost the 30 pounds that the infomercial promised. And they're beginning to question, is this worth it? Is it doing anything? And it's easier to be not at the gym than it is to be at the gym. So sometimes we give up because we no longer believe that what we are doing leads where we thought it was going to take us in the first place. So how interesting is it? Back to Luke 18. Think about this for a second. Here is Jesus walking with his disciples toward the end of his ministry. He's been with them for some time now, and they've witnessed him teaching. They've witnessed him feeding the 5,000, calming the sea. They've witnessed miracle after miracle. Soon they will witness the crucifixion and the resurrection. These are people we often find ourselves, we envy them. We think, man, I wish I could have been there to watch Jesus do all that he did. We envy them. These very disciples, Jesus is here in Luke 18 with them, and he knows that they soon will face a temptation in regards to prayer and faithfulness to God. It's not a temptation that they might become angry in their prayer. In fact, angry prayer is biblical. If you read in the book of Psalms, you will see very quickly those authors who are writing the, book, the Psalms, they say things that we would often wouldn't be comfortable saying in church. They're direct, they're bold, they get angry. So it's not that Jesus is worried they might get angry in their prayer. It's probably not that he's worried that they might start praying to some other god. The temptation he knows they will face soon is the temptation simply to give up. To give up. To question, is all of this worth it? Is my prayer doing anything? What's the point in it all? So we're told by Luke again in verse 1, this parable is intended to show the disciples how to pray always and not to give up. So we have to ask ourselves, how does this parable do that? Well, one way of reading this parable might go something like this. Sometimes we approach maybe this passage, maybe any passage, and we approach it and we think, what does the Bible say about me? Where am I in the Bible? How do I show up? What does it tell me that I'm supposed to do? What does it tell me about who I am? Me, 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 me. And we kind of get focused there for a second. It's all about me. So I'm in this story somehow. Where am I? Let me find me. And then I'll figure everything else out. So when we do that, we might approach this parable and we think, okay, there's this, there's this widow here. That's got to be me because she's the good person in the story. And I'm the good person in the story. So here's this widow. I'm the widow. And she's crying out for justice. Well, that's my prayer. And that leaves one detail to this parable left to be penned down. She's crying out to this unjust judge. Well, who do we pray to? We pray to God. So the judge must, in some sense, represent God. Now, in this version of the parable, if we understand it this way, the lesson becomes something like this. We are to keep trying, keep pushing, be persistent, be determined, and never give up. 
And eventually, we will get the thing we seek in prayer. Don't give up. Okay? That becomes what the lesson is about. One day, I found myself at Chipotle. Oh, lots of days I found myself at Chipotle. One day in particular, I was at Chipotle to grab some lunch, and I parked the car, and I got out and began to walk toward the building. And I noticed there was this woman. She looked disheveled, and she wasn't really walking to the building or out of the building. She was sort of wandering in the parking lot. And we made eye contact, but neither said a word. So I went in, I ordered my food, and I came back out, and she had vanished. She was gone. So I opened my door, and I prepared to sit down and take off. But then I noticed something. On the back of my car, sitting on the bumper, was this woman. Now, I could have driven away, but I didn't think Jesus would like that very much. So I, get, I walk back to try to find out what's going on, find out what I can do for her. But before I can ever talk, she locks eyes with me again, and she says, do you have any change? So I reach for my pocket to find what I have. And as I'm searching for what I might have in my pocket, I realize what was going on in this situation. Her plan was to sit on my bumper until I gave her something that she wanted. I was impressed with her creativity, her persistence, though I question whether it was legal, but that's beside the point. The lesson in this parable, if we read it in this way, it's sort of like The Little Engine That Could. Do you remember that book? Everyone read The Little Engine That Could? I never got the creepy clown on the back, but that's a different matter. The Little Engine That Could, though, right? We're, su we're supposed to keep trying. Keep trying. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. Until we get there, and then I thought I could. I thought I could, right? The parable becomes persistence. Don't give up. But I have to ask, does that understanding of the parable address again what we read in verse 1? Does it show us as disciples our need to pray always and not give up? Well, I certainly think it would challenge us to pray always because in this version, prayer is more a matter of quantity than it is quality. If we just keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing, our prayer will be answered. But I would suggest to you that the view of God that that portrays is kind of discouraging. Think about it for a second. In this version of the story, God is sitting there totally able to, to answer our prayers at any given moment. But, you know, maybe he's busy. And we just have to keep pestering him, keep pestering him, keep on, keep at it until we finally wear God out and then God gives us the thing for which we prayed. I have some problems with that understanding of God. It doesn't really fit with how I understand God from the rest of the Bible. So we have to ask, is that the only understanding of this parable that's available to us? Well, I said earlier that when we read a parable, it's important that we read how it begins, what happens before it, and what happens after it. So let's read now verses 6 through 8 of, of Luke 18. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Here's Jesus' point. 
If God is who we say God is, if God is who Jesus reveals God to be, and if even this wicked, no good judge eventually gives in to this cry of the widow, how much more will God, who created us, God who loves us, God who desires to save us, to heal us, how much more will this God hear our cries and answer and provide us the justice we need? How much more? Instead of this parable being about the persistent widow and our own persistence, it might be better understood as being about the persistent God. When we run from God, we push God away. We don't have time for God. God pursues us. God never gives up. God keeps seeking after us. And if we so much as turn toward God, God rejoices and desires to hear our prayers and to answer them. In other words, this parable isn't about me and my, my persistence per se. It's about the character of God. It's a reminder of the God to whom we pray. Luke and Jesus, I, I think, present here a twofold reality. First of all, they assume that we will, in fact, as disciples, find ourselves in moments where we will be tempted to be discouraged. The parable doesn't work unless we take that for granted. Even those disciples, again, who saw all that Jesus did and would soon watch him be raised from the dead, Jesus knew here in Luke 18 they would be discouraged. So we, too, are in good company when we find ourselves discouraged. And I tell you, prayer can be a discouraging practice. We don't see the thing for which we pray and we wonder, does it do anything? Is anyone out there? Does anyone hear us? Does it matter? But on the other hand, in response to that reality, they call our attention again to the one to whom we pray. Prayer, faithful prayer, is not so much about what we pray or how we pray, it's about the one to whom we pray. Prayer shows up throughout Luke. And one of the most significant prayers in the gospel comes in Luke 22. And this is at the end of Jesus' ministry. This is the night in which he is going to be betrayed by one of his close friends. And he's going to be arrested. He's going to be shamed. He's going to be executed. And on that night, Jesus himself is on his knees in prayer. And here's how he prays. He says, Father, please take this from me. Now, with a level of humility and vulnerability that would make many of us uncomfortable in prayer, Jesus himself, the Son of God, says, Father, please take this from me. But he continues in his prayer and says, however, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus demonstrates in that final prayer the intimacy and the trust required for faithful prayer. He reminds us that faithful prayer is about the one to whom we pray. If even this unjust, no good judge in this parable will eventually grant the request of this woman, how much more will the God who created us, the God who loves us, the God who sent his son to die for us and be with us, how much more will this God not only hear our prayers, but come quickly to give us the justice we need.
Amen.